Welcome to Cato Audio for July 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, David Weller of Google and Neha Mishra of the Australia National University College of Law explain some of the interactions of personal data, surveillance, the internet, and global trade. Cato's Julian Sanchez and Pat Eddington discuss the enduring importance of the Pentagon Papers 50 years later. And Cato author Charlie Silver details why medical malpractice litigation doesn't serve patients or the medical system very well. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. Among the bits of fallout from the COVID-19 pandemic was a major run-up in housing prices, particularly in densely populated urban areas. But uh, of course, housing touches so many different things and so many different things touch housing. So we've seen uh, massive increases in uh, some commodity prices that uh, have affected home construction. But of course, there are deeper problems in the housing market and trying to make sure that everybody who wants a place to live can have one. Uh, and to talk about that, I'm speaking with Scott Lincecum uh, of the Cato Institute and Nolan Gray, who is a city planner recently affiliated with the Mercatus Center and now uh, a student once again of uh, planning and uh, urban policy. So uh, let's begin here. If you didn't wouldn't mind, guys, just walk us through the last year and a half of experience with housing and just what happened. Well, sure, I can I can I can take a stab at that. Um, so essentially, um, after COVID-19 hit, um, the immediate expectation was that um, housing prices and sales would go into the toilet that because, of course, everybody was terrified. And I think they did for for a month or so. But then once the stay at home orders were lifted and people were actually allowed to leave their houses um, wherever they were. There was a really significant and I think quite expected, unsurprising interest in getting the heck out of the city um, and on moving to suburban areas, uh, rural areas and the rest. And, and not necessarily moving from New York to Iowa, but simply moving from, say, New York to New Jersey. And uh, that demand um, really exploded. Uh, it really looks like, I guess, last summer, really, and has simply continued. And you're, you combine that, and I'm sure as we'll get into that in a second, um, with still restricted supply, um, some for pandemic reasons, right? Um, you know, you're not going to have as many construction crews out. You're certainly not going to have as many um, places selling building materials or, you know, shipping and all that kind of jazz. Um, but also because of long-term systemic issues in the United States about uh, <laughs> that make it difficult to build. Um, simply, it was just, you know, um, almost catastrophic of sorts uh, collision. Um, and, and so you've seen just a really huge run up in prices and prices were already, you know, going up. It just it was just rocket fuel for that. 
Nolan, what is Scott leaving out of this in your view? You know, I think he covered a lot of important territory there. Um, a lot of people were looking for short-term explanations, right? Uh, with people remote working, demand was high, people wanted more space. Um, you know, you had work stoppages that, that were real. You know, permitting data was down in 2020 pretty dramatically. Um, and of course, you had the whole episode with lumber prices, which I'm sure Scott can get into. Uh, but the long-term causes of the present housing shortage are really much more a function of some of the local land use regulations that actually make production of additional housing incredibly difficult. So in many of the cities that are dealing you know, with the worst versions of this crisis, um, in places on the on the on the west coast and in the northeast, they already had housing shortages coming into 2020. Uh, the prophesized uh, death of California and New York City didn't happen. People still want to live there, and in many cases they're returning. Housing demand is surging uh, amid uh, stagnant supply, and then also at the same time, you know, much less explored. And this is something I get into in my city journal piece: is that this crisis is actually coming, being exported from these traditionally high cost regions to states and cities that were historically more affordable. You know, I had family in Lexington, Kentucky, uh, telling me uh, California-style stories about lines around the block and bidding wars and cash offers uh, for homes that just a few years ago were affordable to a regular middle-class family. Um, and so what's happening is you have surging demand all over the country. Uh, and in many cases, you have sets of rules that make it very, very hard to add new supply. We are speaking, I am reminded, Nolan, that uh, we are speaking today. This is the one-year anniversary since I bought my home. So I also have many thoughts on this subject, uh, but I'll, I'll leave it to you guys to suss out the important details. But within weeks of our purchase of a home, there was exactly what you're describing, um, uh, something like a bidding war that had just seemed to come out of nowhere for the limited number of homes that were on the market. And I think it's valuable for our listeners to, to separate out the variables from the constants here. And so in terms of the constants that are nonetheless policy problems that need to be uh, detailed, uh, for you, Scott, what's, what's number one uh, for creating a broader more accessible, affordable housing throughout the United States. Yeah, I, I mean, I think number one is land use regulation, um, and I'm gonna, I'm actually gonna go to number two because I think Nolan can do a much better job than I can getting into the weeds of land use regulation. But let's just say that, I mean, I think if you're gonna rank them, the number one driver is going to be all of the things that states and localities do to restrict the quantity, the supply of housing via zoning and all the rest of the rules. And again, no one's the expert on that, so I'll defer to him. But I think less discussed, but uh, almost equally important, particularly in lower demand areas. Um, and what I mean by that is so outside of San Francisco, New York, big cities, you know, uh, some of these places that are um, where the cost is the cost of construction. Right. So um, because in the in the highest demand areas, there's going to be a pretty big delta, a pretty big gap between kind of construction costs and final sales price. But in in a lot of other places, lower demand places, uh, middle America and the rest, um, construction costs still are pretty significant, can be can be a pretty significant driver of, of the final price of a, of a house. And here there's a a laundry list of things that 
policy does to increase construction costs. And I, I, I wrote an article, I think, back in December, and I listed all of these. I'll go through them pretty quickly. Um, one is trade policies. So we have, over the last two decades, give or take, uh, essentially applied duties and tariffs to imports of almost everything you need to build a house. So, of course, you have lumber and of, and of course you have steel, but lesser known are kitchen countertops, cabinets. Uh, there's uh, all sorts of cement. I can go on and on. And I wrote a blog post with a big, long chart of all of these things. So so that's in tariffs inevitably are going to raise the, the domestic price of those goods. And, and that can, again, get passed on uh, to housing consumers in, in the final sales price. Um, but we also do things like we... Uh, through HUD policy and other things, we uh, restrict the sale of manufactured housing. So um, we have a lot of restrictions on manufactured homes that, again, preference what we call stick-built homes, single-family homes. And that's that's a bit of a, a problem. And then finally, um, there's just all the permitting fees that go into the price of a house, or at least the cost, excuse me, of a house. And in some places, those are pretty reasonable, but in other places, they're they're ma- they're really substantial. Uh, they can you know, be a, a big chunk of the total cost. And you add all those things up, and you end up just jacking up the cost of a house. And for professional builders and the rest, um, that's going to affect uh, the final sales price again in a lot in a lot of places. Nolan, on the original sin of land use regulation as a, dri- as a driver of the high cost of housing, is it just that because we plan, the price goes up, or is it how we plan? Well, you know, Scott detailed a lot of really salient reasons why the homes that do get built end up being significantly more expensive, right? Um, but you know. Uh, an issue that precedes that is that we simply don't allow houses to be built in the first place. Um, you know, so it might be the case that we allowed a lot of houses to be built, but uh, because of you know uh, rising tariffs or or high construction costs, the houses that get built would just be more expensive, and and that would be a problem. Uh, but one of the issues that we're kind of contending with in the first place is just allowing housing to be built at all. Um, you know, we have a housing affordability crisis, which comes down to a housing shortage, and that housing shortage is a function of cities not permitting housing. It comes down to really one uh, set of one or a handful of set of regulations, principally land use regulation. So many cities have a policy called zoning, uh, which allows them to determine what can be built where and at what density. Um, You can tell a nice story about this. You know, it's meant to keep incompatible uses separate, to keep factories away from residential neighborhoods. Um, This is certainly the story that you'll be taught if you go to planning school. Of course, in practice, zoning mainly functions uh, to suppress uh, densities in certain areas uh, to segregate cities uh, on the basis of income and in the U.S. context by race. And so this has become a huge problem. It's a huge barrier to new housing production. Uh, I generally highlight three rules uh, that make additional housing production difficult. Uh, one is very simply minimum lot sizes. So cities will say, if you want to build a home, you have to have at least 10,000 square feet of land. Uh, regardless of what consumers actually want. In many cases, in, in, in many U.S. contexts, a family might be you know, more than happy for a modest home on a 5,000 square foot lot. That might fulfill their needs. But if a city is saying, we're not going to allow you to build and occupy a home unless you have 10,000 square feet, uh, two things happen. One, you get 
half as many homes on the, uh, this type of development simply because you've doubled the amount of land that each of these homes need to occupy. But then two of the homes that get built, they end up more expensive uh, because uh, fewer people are having to cover the land costs. Uh, that applies in cities and rural areas uh, in a really big way. It matters in cities to the extent that it prevents you from taking maybe an existing single family home in an inner suburb and dividing it in half, which is what cities historically did before the rise of zoning. Um, but in cities, you have a whole different set of issues. Um, so one, you know, regulation that I highlight, you know, and I, I'm working here with a economist, Donald Shoup, who's done a lot of work on parking policy. In many cases, cities say, if you want to build housing, you can't legally do it unless you provision off street parking spaces. Now, again, this sounds, uh, perfectly fine in theory, right? Uh, shouldn't, if you're going to build a home, shouldn't it have a parking spot? Doesn't everybody in America drive? Uh, but really, essentially, what it's doing is it's second guessing developers and the people who will eventually occupy those units. In many cases, those people might actually not uh, want to pay the additional cost associated with building a parking garage or a large surface lot. You know, in an urban area, a parking garage can easily add fifty thousand dollars to the cost of a new unit. So these are also elements that make uh, housing prohibitively difficult. Last one I'll highlight is uh, single-family zoning. So in for most U.S. cities, about you know, 75 to 90% of the city cannot be built to anything more than a single, a detached single family home. Um, and again, you know, this is a nice thing in theory. Wouldn't it be nice if everyone had a detached single family home on a 7,500 square foot lot? Uh, but in practice, as you have demand going up, it, in many cases, it might be uh, preferable to take some of those homes and turn them into duplexes, turn them into fourplexes, turn them into townhouses. Um, you know, in many U.S. contexts, the starter home in 2021 is not that 1950s ranch style or Levittown Cape Cod home. In many cases today, the starter home is a townhouse and cities make that very, very difficult to build virtually everywhere uh, in, in, in inner suburbs, outer suburbs, wherever you are. All right. Let me put this question to you both uh, as an open question, which is what are the incentives that keep this state as it is? Well, um, I, I think it's a, a classic case of concentrated benefits and diffuse costs, um, you know, particularly on the costs side of things. I mean, you go with the trade policy stuff, for example. Um, let's face it, uh, lumber producers in the United States uh, benefit substantially when the price of lumber is uh, $1,500 per board foot, which is, you know, three times or more than uh, the historical price. Um, and the the rest of us feel that only a little bit, and especially in the housing case, you know, it's only, only going to add a few thousand dollars to the cost of building a home. Um, and so when you, you, you can now then extend that out though, into, I think all of the, the policies we're really talking about, because the, you know, look for people who, uh, by, by luck or, uh, paying high prices have gotten into these areas that have, um, a very restrictive land use regulation. Um, they have a, a extremely personal interest in maintaining the status quo. Um, whereas the rest of us, maybe people who want to move into that area, have a, a lesser interest um, and, quite frankly, could be a total outsider and might not be able to have a, a voice or a say at all. And so that dynamic 
uh, really drives, um, I think, a lot of housing policy. Um, you just have a, a lot of folks that are going to show up to those uh, town you know, city council meetings um, and because they have a very personal stake in it. And that makes you know it much more difficult to reform because, look, politicians, and I'm going to be public choice theory here, politicians are self-interested. They're interested in getting reelected. And the squeaky wheel gets the oil and the squeaky wheel are the people at those city council meetings. Um, and I think, you know, I would add along with all the things Nolan said, another kind of area that I don't know if it gets as much play is what what's, I think some people call the vetocracy out there, which is the idea of third parties able to essentially stymie development, um, even if they don't have a personal interest in it. Here, I'm in, I'm here in Raleigh, and I can't tell you the number of times I've seen on Nextdoor, which is basically a, a wonderful uh, like spying on the NIMBY movement. Um, but you know, uh, people organizing to go and and block or uh, seek to block development that is nowhere near their homes. I mean, this is, you know, miles and miles and miles away. And and it, and it can be effective. And and that vetocracy, I think, is another really big problem, particularly for large-scale development in uh, left-of-center urban areas. Nolan, I believe that I sent you a photograph uh, recently of beautiful Midway, Kentucky, and a yard sign that said, no more density, and then R3 with a line around it and a slash through it, basically saying, we don't want any high density development anywhere around here. Uh, and that that's a local issue, but it's a local issue in a lot of places. And as Scott pointed out, in uh, wealthier, sometimes left of center places. So uh, zoning continues to be a problem and it's overwhelmingly a problem where Entrenched interests, homeowners, are the ones who are likely to be the ones who will prevail. That's exactly right. I mean, you take a place like Midway. Um, Midway's great. Uh, it's a great place to go on a day trip if you live in Louisville or Lexington. Uh, it's probably a great place to live. Uh, evidently so, because a lot of people want to live there. The trouble is that the people who want to live in Midway don't have a say in how much housing is allowed or what type of housing is allowed in Midway. But the people who already live in Midway and maybe like it as it is and don't want anyone else coming in and screwing it up for them, they get all the say. Um, and so, you know, as incumbents, they naturally are very resistant and reluctant to change. I don't see a way around that until you set up policy institutions that force uh, policymakers and planners to take into consideration regional needs. Um, you know, I think there's two elements here, uh, which I think Scott, you know, tapped into some of these. But, you know, if, if you've been a homeowner for the past year, the past year really hasn't been so bad for you. If you're an incumbent property owner, um, things are actually going pretty well. You've you've gained a lot of wealth just by, you know, uh, sitting on your property. Um, the problem is for people who maybe are young professionals who want to buy a home, uh, people who are moving for jobs or people who are trying to move to opportunity. Uh, you know, for example, in the in the context of Kentucky, a lot of people leave uh, distressed communities in eastern Kentucky or rural Kentucky, and they find incredible opportunity in places like Lexington and Louisville. Um, so it's great for the incumbent homeowners, and and they understand that. And I think that they do, uh, you know, in many cases, uh, homeowners are, you know, pushing against housing, aware of the financial stake that they have in housing scarcity. But there's this broader social issue. Um, and I think that we need a set of policy institutions that uh, 
perhaps lets people have some say in how their community functions, but not to the extent that they're overriding these pressing social needs. Um, you know, essentially what we're seeing right now is California exporting its housing crisis uh, to every city in America. And, you know, a few years ago, I would talk to uh, folks in the Mountain West. I would talk to planners in the in the Southeast and they would say, yeah, you know, we don't really have those problems. Uh, we're, you know, we got plenty of housing. Housing is super affordable here. And I told him, I said, I'm looking at your zoning code and I don't see a lot of differences between that and Los Angeles. The difference is that right now you have a lot of cheap land uh, and it's plenty enough to sustain the people who are coming here now uh, at the present requirements. But that's not going to last forever. And I think what's happening now is that now that demand has just so, 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 so much surged uh, so exponentially, I think we're really hitting those limits where cities now actually have to say, OK, are our rules blocking uh, maybe desirable uh, housing typologies that would keep our city affordable. Uh, and, you know, these aren't just people coming from out of the city. Uh, if you don't have affordable housing, what's going to happen when your young people graduate high school or come back from college? Uh, in many cases, they're not able to afford the cities that they actually grew up in. Um, so, you know, we we talk a lot about how homeowners have a bad set of incentives to keep housing costs high. Um, but, you know, I think there's this other element of it here, which is that you get this incredible... Um, social instability and social harm that I think homeowners do at some point feel. Go ahead, Scott. No, I was just going to say I, the, I, I have tried to evangelize to my fellow homeowners in the sense that um, you, we need to look, and I certainly do, try to look beyond my own personal direct financial interest and look at my own personal interest in having a vibrant community. Um, and, and I'm, I don't really even mean in, in kind of the social sense or any of that I'm talking an economically vibrant community. I think that really restrictive land use policy and very high housing costs really kind of can destroy a city's economic dynamism. And economic dynamism is not just merely a neat word. It's, you know, all those cool things you think about, you know, whether it's the uh, coffee shops and all the rest of this cool boutiques and all that kind of stuff, that churn and that that growth and that that vibrancy by having young people um, and innovative people in your in your neighborhoods and in, in your towns. And if and, and of course, then there's just tax revenue and all the rest of that stuff that comes from economic growth. And if you if you think only in very narrow terms of your your home or, you know, you just really like the way things look or whatever. Um, you're you're really missing the bigger picture of of that need, the really need to move forward and and have economic growth and dynamism. And and if you don't, well, you can end up in a pretty bad place pretty quickly. I have walked through many cities with historic preservation districts, and they almost feel like a microcosm of what you just described, Scott, yeah. which is absolute stasis. Yeah. Uh, with respect to homes, with respect to the rules that An allow economic certain graveyard. people, yeah, yeah, and and so I'm I'm very amenable to that uh, to hearing that. But Nolan, in terms of changing that, it wouldn't. I, I couldn't run for the state house in Kentucky or state senate in Kentucky and say I want to move all zoning decisions to Frankfurt. <laughs> I definitely wouldn't recommend it. Yeah, that's a, That sounds like a terrible thing to run on, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, I think the way we need to think about it is that there need to be guardrails. Um, you know, cities have this power to control essentially everything that gets built. Um, 
And maybe it's appropriate that they have wide berth in executing those powers. But we know that in many cases, cities do misbehave. They misuse these powers. They use them in a way that harm neighboring municipalities or harm a region as a whole. And at that point, it does become a matter of state interest. You know, and so this isn't necessarily state governments coming in and saying, hey, we're going to take over zoning powers. But it is going, it is state governments coming in and saying, hey, if you over-regulate and you're over-regulating and your regulations are so strict and so incoherent uh, that you're causing residents of the state, maybe outside of your city, significant harm, I do think it's justified to come in and and set up some guardrails and protect people. And really, you know, I think a lot of people, I think the, the ideologies and the, the partisan politics get really scattered on this uh, because people say exactly that. They say, well, I don't want Frankfurt or I don't want Sacramento telling us what to do. They're, they're coming in and they're regulating us. I mean, in a certain sense, yes, but they're regulating another government, which is in turn over-regulating its citizens and placing ex excessive limits on property rights. So for example, some of the preemption that's happened here in Kentucky, or sorry, in California, um, <laughs> here in California, one of the big forms of preemption that's happened over the last few years has been to allow accessory dwelling units state law. Accessory dwelling units, that's a really wonky term. It basically just means an extra unit that goes in your unused basement or your attic or your garage. If you're a homeowner, you can install one of these. In many cases, people uh, you know, let aging parents live in them, or that's why they're sometimes called granny flats uh, or in-law, mother-in-law units. Um, Sometimes they let their young professional children live in them, you know, maybe when they're fresh out of college or when they're, you know, building up wealth to make a down payment. California has basically said to cities, hey, you know, we have a housing shortage. Um, a lot of you cities don't allow homeowners to do this. And a lot of homeowners really want to do it. They really want to add accessory dwelling units because, you know, they don't care about the housing crisis, but they just want to addition, you know, generate some additional revenue. Um, and so the state coming in is basically saying to cities, hey, we're going to put limits on your ability and how you can regulate uh, property rights in certain forms. And we're going to protect homeowners uh, when they want to do things that, uh, you know, are so clearly in demand. You know, that to me is not a, a big government versus small, a clear big government, small government story. That's a story of, you know, who do we give the powers to where we maximize property rights? Uh, we expand the scope of power for people who want to, you know, serve this unmet demand. Yeah. And I think the other aspect there is that, um, you know, few of the housing advocates, the free market housing advocates I, I know of are, are saying we want to build a skyscraper next to your single family home um, because there's there's a huge difference between, you know, mandatory half acre lot size and a skyscraper, right? And I got to say, if you follow Nolan on Twitter, which everybody listening should, you kind of become red pilled when you when you see because he posts a lot of pictures of local um, architecture and, and the rest. And you can really see what is a totally reasonable change in in zoning from, say, single family home to, uh, you know, allowing for duplexes or quadplexes or all these things. And it's not nearly as scary, I think, once you do. Um, and you also, I think, once you think about these things, then when you travel your own neighborhood, you see massive plots of land nearby urban areas that are totally undeveloped except for one little house. Uh, yeah, I mean, you you really, like I said, you get kind of red pilled on the whole thing. Um, you see there's a real need to to for for change. Well, well Scott, I, you said something, you know, uh, this this uh, this element about dynamism, right? You know, I think California is 
you know, sort of an advanced case of the illness that is the housing crisis. Um, and something you see in a lot of cities in California is for decades, you had people who lived there saying like, we don't want any more growth. We like our city is great. Our, our little suburb is great. Uh, we don't need any new development. We don't need any change. Uh, why are you coming in here and, and, and making us uh, do anything differently? But if you actually look at the data, they didn't stay the same. In many cases, these suburbs have experienced uh, pretty striking population loss. Um, so because they didn't build a new housing, they didn't stay the same. It's just that people started moving away. Uh, people started consuming larger houses. Uh, the population got smaller and much, much older. And then people look around one day after decades of saying, we don't want the community to change. We don't want any townhouses. We don't want any houses on smaller yeah. lots. Um, we definitely don't want any accessory dwelling units or, or God forbid, a trailer home coming into our neighborhood. And, you know, 20 years, uh, 30 years of that type of activism, they look out and there's like, well, there's no children playing on the street. <laughs> there's nobody starting small businesses here. Um, there's no families. Uh, the retirees, they've all moved out to Arizona. They've, you know, they've cashed the check and moved out. Um, so, you know, a lot of times NIMBYs will say, we'll frame it as, you know, change versus uh, keeping things the same. And that's that's really not on offer. Cities have to grow and they have to grow in a healthy and, and regular way or they decline. I mean, those are really the options facing cities. Yeah. And and some places that are just massive magnets for financial capital or tech can kind of get away with it. Although I think COVID may be one of the silver linings and the kind of remote work uh, boom is that maybe that that uh, balance of power is shifting a little bit. But, you know, uh, not everywhere is Manhattan um, and and not everywhere can afford to have that type of, uh, you know, housing cost issue um and and can't be that that restrictive and if if you're not one of those places and you have those still have those restrictive policies in place like no one said someday you're going to wake up and uh, you're going to be kind of living in a ghost town all right on that happy note we're going to leave it there <laughs> nolan gray is very active on twitter uh, his his writings are everywhere that you might care about reading about housing policy. Uh, Scott Linscombe, of course, is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, and you can follow Cato's work on this important subject and will be continue to be an important subject for many years to come at Cato.org. National debates over policies that affect the flow of digital information are heating up as censorship, surveillance, control over personal data, and requirements to store data locally have become contentious political issues. Meanwhile, governments are negotiating international agreements that constrain their ability to regulate domestically. What exactly are the problems that have been caused by domestic regulation of the flow of digital information? At a Cato event in June, David Weller, Director of Economic and Trade Policy at Google, and Neha Mishra, lecturer at the Australian National University College of Law, discussed what trade rules mean for the free flow of information. This is such an important um, and challenging conversation. I'm glad we have two esteemed academics on, on the panel as well, because they really are tricky issues. Um, but before turning to your um, specific question on um, sort of the types of regulation that we're, we're, we're seeing in the digital space and kind of their trade effects, I wanted to take a step back and 
um, just say a word about the stakes um, and really what the internet means for trade. And I think, you know, you talked about kind of different audiences for your conversation and, and sort of for, for a non-trade technology audience, I think uh, they know quite instinctively um, about the nature of the internet as a open network of networks that was designed fundamentally um, to promote openness and interoperability um, and really maximize interconnection and is by design really a global commons. And, you know, it doesn't take long to think about that in a trade context and appreciate kind of the power of that kind of technology um, and technology model for, for trade. And this is already a well-known story in terms of um, how the internet is flattening uh, trade, expanding who participates in trade. And I hate to say this sometimes because it feels, you know, very grand and highfalutin, but I really think democratizing trade. And, and that's by now a pretty well-known um, story. Um, it is worth pausing for a moment though and thinking about sort of in the COVID context of the past year, what that has um, what, what that has meant. And I just wanted to kind of flag a couple of statistics that bring it home um, uh, uh, to light. Um, the first is that um, in, in the United States, one in three US small businesses report over the past year that digital tools have kept them open essentially. Um, and some portion of those, um, uh, some decent portion of those point to uh, the expanded customer base and, and, and markets that they've been able to reach in a time of COVID. So as, you know, demand dropped uh, because of uh, different restrictions and obviously no one coming into, into, into stores, but even, you know, even different economic impacts across geographies, small businesses really being able to expand uh, their base and 40% and of small businesses um, say they're using digital tool, ha, have been using digital tools to find new customers during COVID, including internationally. And that's just such a, you think about the hardship of the past year plus, um, that's such a powerful and important um, story. Um, you know, just as in to, to get more directly to your question, sort of the kinds of regulation that we're seeing um, and how it's impeding um, at times some of this model. Um, I think it's 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 first first just worth noting, of course, regulation like for any technology is critical. Ultimately, it's actually technology will not get properly implemented and harvested and taken up without proper uh, uh, regulation. And indeed, in the era of the internet, despite uh, sort of um, Conventional wisdom—it has not been an unregulated space for the past twenty years. There's new, new, new regulation that needs to be developed, but there's lots of regulation in the internet space. But I just want to um, note that I don't think this is a conversation about how does regulation per se interfere with trade. That that being said, and and as your your setup kind of alluded to, the way regulation is pursued really can undermine some of the trade benefits and potential that I just spoke to, spoke about that we see from digital technologies and, and from um, from the internet and so it's you know a bit of a story of you know you give it the, you give it with one hand and take it away uh, with, with, with another and, and you know trade policy can play a, a critical role in putting some parameters around that and I just wanted to highlight 
um, kind of three areas of the kind of regulation that we're seeing that I think has, you know, trade has something to say about or regulatory trends. The first is really discrimination in closed markets, tilting the playing field in favor of local players and closing markets to foreign providers. You know, this is nothing new and this is sort of normal political economy and national politics. We're just seeing it now play out in a different form factor um, in, in, in the case of, uh, of digital. The second is really lack of transparency and, and due process. Um, and I think you often see this in the area of sort of new technologies and often technologies that touch, you know, critical social and other political matters, um, of, often of great political sensitivity in governments, um, not impo imposing kind of good rule of law approaches to regulation of a new technology. Again, this for any sort of trade lawyer, trade policy person, transparency, due process, is kind of a very common norm, but again, sort of thinking about that in the trade context, um, the digital trade context. And then the third point I'd, I'd highlight and trend that we're really seeing is a lack of interoperability um, and really governments making digital policies in a vacuum. I think we are in a bit of a, um, you know, I, I don't know what the, the right adjective to describe our current state of affairs, but there is a active debate in almost every major and minor geography in the world about new regulation around um, digital issues, around online speech, around online markets, many, many privacy, many, many different issues. Um, and a lot of those are needed in good conversations, but we're seeing much too much of governments taking on those issues and addressing those issues in silos. Um, and when they don't think about how one country's sets of rules dealing with a common issue differ from another country's, um, then you 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 end up in a real um, mishmash, um, which sort of just as much as discrimination can really take away the benefits that the, that the technologies um, offer. So those are, I think, three broad trends that we see in the regulatory space um, that that I think threaten some of the digital trade um, uh, benefits, and that I think trade policy can uh, can help address. Um, so David provided a very good overview of of the internet as and digital technologies as a tool for digital trade and as well as the interface of domestic regulation and digital trade in the real world. Um, and I, I completely agree with him that in a short span of time and in a rather dramatic manner, we are seeing different countries at different levels of digital advancement imposing a variety of new kinds of regulations in the digital sector. And if you think of the changes, they have been so swift because from uh, practically little to no regulation several years ago, maybe about 15, 20 years ago in many countries, not all, uh, we now are living in an era where we have heavy handed regulation in most parts of the world, uh, if not everywhere. Um, so this intersection of domestic digital policies and uh, uh, digital trade, uh, whether it's in areas such as data protection, cybersecurity, censorship, intellectual property, competition, I mean, the whole 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 range of areas uh, is, is definitely a challenge. And as David said, the diversity of regulatory approaches coupled with the differences in regulation, at least at a granular level, is often a challenge for trade policymakers alongside businesses as well. Uh, but on the positive side, I do think there is a now some uh, movement towards a common high-level approach in some areas of digital regulation, at least among like-minded countries. Now, when it comes to international trade agreements and digital policies, 
my view generally has been that international trade agreements do not necessarily stifle digital regulation so i think of some of the mainstream views are that you know these are very harmful for digital regulation that's not always the case uh, but of course i should add some qualifications here one of which is that uh, digital domestic digital regulations may be subject to principles fundamental principles in international trade agreements non discrimination transparency certain obligations on perhaps on market access might be applicable or there could be domestic regulations on services that might apply although those disciplines are not as well developed uh, in the WTO law context. Uh, and the other aspect that we should keep in mind is, especially at the WTO and many FTAs, countries make sector-specific commitments on market access and national treatment. So the coverage of trade agreements, international trade agreements with respect to digital service services and digital technologies can really vary from country to country. Uh, of course, another important aspect uh, that would jump out when you think of the intersection of domestic policies and trade law are the exceptions uh, in international trade agreement. Um, and the question that often arises, given all these technologies developing and how digital trade ev is evolving, is whether these exceptions, even when the exceptions contained in more recent free trade agreements, whether they are relevant and they are suitable uh, to the policy problems that governments face in the digital world. Um, now, it's, it's good to, of course, note that there are a wide variety of exceptions. Now, if you compare, for instance, the WTO treaties uh, to the CPTPP style of exceptions, and now more recently to the RCEP, you see a whole range of uh, ways in which governments uh, or trading partners are coming to, together and drafting exceptions. Uh, and that has significant implications for regulatory autonomy as well. Um, but at the same time, I mean, if you just look at the old school WTO exceptions, uh, I think we can argue that they would normally, at least they can be contextually applied to the digital sector um, in what is known as evolutionary interpretation within the WTO law context. And also in line with what, again, a lot of trade lawyers call the principle of technological neut neutrality. Um, so I think if, say, a dispute were to arise today, uh, say, on a hard data localization measure in a country, and presuming an obligation has been breached, uh, it is still quite likely that a WTO panel would take a more differential stance as far as the regulatory objectives are concerned, but they might be more stringent when it comes to, say, applying the weighing and balancing test if they are looking at a general exception or if they are looking at the conditions uh, for the security exception. Uh, uh, some of my, in some of my work, what I have argued is that even if you were to apply some of these exceptions uh, from a purely techno-legal perspective without getting into some of the policy uh, challenges involved, uh, trade tribunals are still likely to face difficult questions. And one of the reasons, and I think David identified both of the reasons, one is that there's lack of consensus among countries on what the norms are, um, and also the fact that uh, even within the internet and technical and policy community, there is there is an ongoing debate on what the best tools are. Should it be only regulations or can it be a combination of regulations and technological approaches? Uh, I mean, these are un unsolved debates and in that environment of technology and policy uncertainty, 
it's it's difficult for trade agreements uh, to, 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 to determine the extent to which trade agreements should regulate digital policy. Now, on the point of non-regulation uh, in the digital domain and what WTO law, for instance, can do about it, I would say there isn't that much because WTO law does not set standards or does not prescribe frameworks for privacy or online consumer protection or cyber crimes. And, and that should be the case as well because it's not a standard setting body, it's a trade organization. Uh, but we see a perceptible change in FTAs. Uh, so for instance, there are quite a few FTAs, e-commerce chapters and FTAs that contain provisions on privacy or online consumer protection where countries have come together and agreed to ad adopt a common standards, especially when they are like-minded countries, they identify specific standards such as the OECD guidelines or the APEC framework or the UNSA trial model laws. And the other perceptible shift is looking at new areas like AI or open government data and some of the new digital economy agreements, which would have traditionally never been considered trade issues. Uh, and while there can be many positive developments coming out of it, I think it's an area where uh, trade negotiators should also tread with a little bit of caution. David Weller is the Director of Economic and Trade Policy at Google, and Neha Mishra is a lecturer at the Australia National University College of Law. The Pentagon Papers launched a decades-long fight over how to protect the public from threats while respecting the public's right to know how government works. Patrick Eddington and Julian Sanchez discussed the 50th anniversary of the Pentagon Papers, marked in June. Why should people make note of the Pentagon Papers and its aftermath? Well, it still stands as arguably the most important First Amendment case in American history. And it also uh, was really, I think, kind of the beginning of the end. In fact, it was the beginning of the end of the Nixon administration, because in the quest to go after former Marine Corps officer turned RAND analyst uh, Daniel Ellsberg, uh, Richard Nixon unleashed his hounds to go after Ellsberg and to get try to get his uh, actually order to break into his psychiatrist office and all the rest of that. And so that puts us on the road, essentially, to Watergate and, and Nixon's demise. So hugely consequential, not just because it affirmed the right of the press to publish uh, classified material, but it gave us the ability ultimately to see just exactly how quickly and easily a president can self-destruct in pursuit of a whistleblower. Uh, why was the publication of this information so controversial, Julian? Well, so the uh, what, what we know now know is the Pentagon Papers, uh, I think, was actually had the rather uh, banal title of the report from the Office of the uh, Secretary of Defense on, on, Viet, on the Vietnam uh, War and it was it was prepared as a history of the conflict in in the, the late sixties um, to document for uh, future uh, policymakers, but uh, really revealed the extent uh, of deception of the American public across multiple presidential administrations um, that uh, the U.S. had been involved earlier in ways that had never been reported in the press in. Uh, South Vietnam's internal affairs, that um, 
It had engaged in uh, illegal bombings in Cambodia and Laos uh, that uh, even as Johnson was pledging on the campaign trail, no wider war plans were being made to, in fact, escalate uh, the war in Vietnam. Uh, So all these disclosures uh, showed the extent to which the the uh, the war had been uh, deceptively uh, prosecuted and also the extent to which the sort of the United States was remaining in the war um, largely as a face-saving exercise, uh, you know, and sort of listed the reasons to stay in at the sort of the very bottom. It was, you know, well-contained China, and I suppose, you know, there's some value to having a, a freer and happy life for the, for the Vietnamese, but it was primarily uh, the idea that it would, it would be a humiliation for the United States to, uh, to admit the uh, defeat effectively. Uh, and so that was hugely significant, but also, of course, the, the sort of second order, um, the second order effect of understanding that the government had claimed uh, the sort of dire national security interest. It had obviously illegally gone after Ellsberg by wiretapping his phones and breaking into a psychiatrist's office, but also gone after him in court, uh, charging with espionage. It was because of those. Uh, illicit activities, effectively, the charges were, were ultimately dismissed, uh, having sort of so tainted the proceedings that the court court tossed them. Um, uh, but also going after the New York Times, as Pat mentioned, uh, attempting after the publication on, on June 13th, uh, uh, 1971, uh, of the first New York Times article based on uh, the the uh, these documents that Ellsberg had photocopied in his office at Rand over a period of uh, uh, an extended period. Um, the next administration sought to bar any uh, uh, further articles based on that material, claiming again, uh, you know, some grave harm to national security might uh, might eventuate if uh, if this were permitted. Uh, and you know, I think it's it's pretty hard objectively to look at at what we now know and say. That that was justified. It seems really that the um, the underlying principles this was in fact quite embarrassing uh, to the government, and it was you know less less an issue of uh, a concrete harm to security and more a question of uh, not wanting that embarrassing information out and wanting to set a a, a precedent that um, you know such such a publication could be barred. Uh, and you know, this is a pattern we've seen going back to the very origins of the state secrets privilege back in. Uh, in, in the early fifties, uh, the, the the first place we really get a a, a firm uh, legal foundation for what we now know as the state secrets privilege, allowing the government to effectively refuse to turn over information it would otherwise be obligated to in court, um, stretches to uh, a case called U.S. v. Reynolds from 1953, uh, where the widows of three civilians who had been killed in a military plane crash in Georgia. Um, sought to sue the government, and the government effectively was able to toss the suit, claiming that uh, this would reveal information that was essential to national security, reveal the secret workings of a of military aircraft. Uh, and it, it, the court essentially accepted this and said, okay, no, we find this privilege of the government to protect its national security secrets uh, and toss this lawsuit. And, you know, looking at, it was only nearly 50 years later, around 2000, that the, the the report from that case was was released, uh, and it's it's really very difficult to say there's anything in there that was, um, you know, critical national security information. It was uh, just that it demonstrated the neg- the negligence of uh, of the government uh, in in the incident. We've seen, I think, pretty pretty consistently over time that 
while, of course, you know, there are certain things a government does need to keep secret to sort of execute its legitimate function, its core functions of, of protecting its, uh, its citizens, um, that this, you know, perhaps necessary uh, uh, privilege um, very often becomes a shield for embarrassing facts that uh, governments wish to hide from their people. Uh, Pat, speaking of embarrassing facts, the government has continued to engage in problematic behavior since the release of uh, these documents now 50 years ago. Uh, you know, what do we have access to? What do what are people able to evaluate for themselves that they might not otherwise be able to do had the Pentagon Papers not been published, had this very public fight not occurred? Well, I, I, I think, you know, to go back to something that, you know, Julian just talked about, which is this whole Reynolds case from 1953, one of the problems that we face in terms of being able to actually get information out to the public is this kind of pro-national security judicial activism that gives us uh, garbage rulings like the Reynolds case, right? I mean, they literally, government officials literally lied to the Supreme Court of the United States about why that plane crashed and and what was actually so special about the plane. And there was nothing special about the plane except the lousy maintenance job they did. And they hid that, uh, you know, not just from the families of, of the uh, of the service members who died as a result, but they got themselves this, this magic uh, hide anything you want to essentially from the public kind of capability that, you know, even something like the Freedom of Information Act, which was actually passed uh, five years before the Pentagon Papers case, even something like the Freedom of Information Act cannot actually penetrate. And I think it's worth noting um, that that the the ramifications essentially of of trying to get information out uh, the, that that flowed from the uh, from the president of the Pentagon Papers case is continuously under assault, and it's been under assault, especially uh, in the so-called War on Terror period in the, in the you know post nine eleven period. We saw that first, of course, with what uh, Chelsea Manning. Uh, ultimately leaked um, to WikiLeaks, which was, you know, the uh, Army H-64 Apache footage uh, over the Baghdad, I believe it was the Baghdad area, showing the gunship crew actually murdering civilians uh, and some uh, and some journalists, I believe, who worked for Reuters at the time. And they slap a, a secret classification on that tape and use the secrecy, essentially, to hide a war crime. Um, and, and if we fast forward essentially to what Edward Snowden ultimately did uh, in, in 2013, which was to expose the unconstitutional mass surveillance, among other things, uh, being perpetrated by NSA and the Department of Justice. Again, all of this taking place under this rubric of secrecy, uh, this, this, this shroud essentially that the government tries to draw over its activities. And I think one of the, one of the things that continues to just enrage me about it all is just how readily federal courts show deference to all of this. You know, we, we had a, a ruling again coming out of the FISA court uh, in May and, and, you know, Julian, I know has written on this, uh, whereby again, we learned that, that the FBI engaged in a fairly massive use of searches of the, of the FISA uh, section 702 database um, to keep tabs on people in the absence of any kind of criminal predicate. And the, and the FISA court again, for at least the second time that we know of in the last 10 years, lets them get away with it. No one is sanctioned. No one loses their job. Uh, and I think this is what really causes an, an enormous amount of rage and frustration. But in terms of actual tools 
uh, available to the public by itself, I think uh, the Freedom of Information Act uh, and especially litigation, particularly in this age, really are the primary ones. You know, we have a Congress that is entirely too disengaged on these issues when they're not acting as a cheerleader for the persecution of people like uh, like uh, Julian Assange and uh, and Edward Snowden. Uh, they're sitting back and, and basically doing nothing to address these issues. If you actually go back just quickly and kind of look at at the difference between the reaction to Ellsberg and his revelations on the one hand and Snowden on the other, it's absolutely stark. It's absolutely stark. The number of hearings in Congress that were ultimately uh, uh, launched because of, of these revelations and, and they put us on the road to what would ultimately give us the church and Watergate committees, all the rest of this massive activity of oversight and reform that took place between 1971 and 1978 stands in stark contrast to what happened in the wake of, of what uh, uh, of what Edward Snowden did in 2013. We had no meaningful public hearings uh, by Congress on this issue. And, and we had people like then House Intelligence Committee Chairman Mike Rogers basically uh, lying to the public, telling, telling the public that uh, Snowden had actually given information to the Russians even though that was never alleged in the indictment that the Justice Department issued against him. So uh, it, it's tough getting this stuff out. It, it's why having whistleblowers is so important. What we need are greater protections for whistleblowers. And, and we can get into that, I think, as we go forward here in this podcast. Okay. So, Pat, we want embarrassing failures of our own government that, ha- that do not implicate national security to come to light. And the Pentagon Papers certainly presented us uh, an opportunity to essentially protect people who bring that kind of information to light. Uh, but there, but as Julian said, there are legitimate cases where the government needs to keep things secret for the purposes of executing on its promise of delivering national security. I think we have to make some distinctions between um, that which is legitimately classified. Um, to actually protect a completely perishable source and method, for example, um, versus you misusing deliberately and with malice of forethought, misusing the classification system to conceal waste, fraud, abuse, misconduct, uh, uh, and even criminal conduct uh, and things that, that embarrass the government. And although we have an executive order that uh, explicitly prohibits that activity, executive order uh, 13, uh, 526, which is the one that governs the use of the classification system. It's just that it's an executive order. It is not statute. And there, to the best of my knowledge, has never actually been an investigation, uh, of, of any individual who's engaged in overclassification for the purpose of concealing the very kinds of, of misconduct and problems that we've been talking about. And I, I think, uh, you know, to kind of go back to what Julian uh, harped on very nicely there is this whole issue of judicial deference and and the and the fear of of being wrong. I would think that after the last the history of the last fifty years of the so-called national security state, we ought to be doing a much better job in our law schools uh, of of teaching folks, hey, this is when they lied, this is how they lied, this is the pattern and practice of their lying. Uh, if you get on the federal bench. You know, don't take their word for it. And if you're concerned as a judge, you have the authority to retain what's known as a special master, essentially uh, uh, an independent arbiter who can assist you in evaluating whether or not these claims are uh, are credible. And in fact, one of the one of the few useful things that I saw in, in USA Freedom Act that was passed in 2015 was the creation of this 
this kind of, of overall capabilities. One of the very few times I've actually seen it put in, in statute in connection with any kind of uh, national security related activity. I think it ought to be mandatory in the same way that I believe that it ought to be mandatory for every judge to have to conduct in-camera reviews uh, in FOIA cases every time the government makes a B1 or national security related uh, assertion. You know, if material is is 25 years old or older, uh, it's subject to mandatory declassification review anyway. Uh, so we really need to have a, a fundamental sea change in mentality and culture. And you would think that in the 50 years since Daniel Ellsberg did what he did, we would have had enough folks go through successive Congresses and we would have had enough folks pass through the federal judiciary that they would have learned that your job is not to take the word of the executive branch. Your job is to oversee the executive branch and make sure that they're not abusing this authority and this power. But we just don't have that. And I, I have to point out that our colleagues on, on the criminal justice team just last week published this devastating uh, report on exactly how radically out of balance uh, the federal judiciary is uh, in terms of the number of, of former prosecutors who have become judges. I mean, it is absolutely astounding the imbalance that we have here. So it helps. I think it really helps to explain in so many ways why we see this deferential attitude on the part of federal judges. That's because so many of them are former prosecutors. And so they're going to give the benefit of the doubt to the government and makes it impossible in many cases to actually get what I would really consider to be a genuinely fair, impartial hearing on the claims of the parties involved in these kinds of cases. Patrick Eddington and Julian Sanchez are senior fellows at the Cato Institute. How well does the medical malpractice system compensate injured patients and spur better care? Charlie Silver is co-author of Medical Malpractice Litigation, How It Works, Why Tort Reform Hasn't Helped. We spoke for the Cato Daily Podcast. Give us a sense of the scope and scale of medical malpractice in the United States today. There is a surprisingly large amount of medical malpractice. Nobody knows exactly how much malpractice there is because a very large fraction of it goes unreported. Uh, so anyone who says they can uh, estimate it with precision is conveying false information. Uh, but uh, we know that there are people who are uh, systematically at risk of being injured. For example, secondary infections, infections that occur in hospitals uh, as a result of patients being treated. Uh, these infections are quite common, but they can be eliminated very inexpensively. It's simply that hospitals are not taking the precautions that are needed to reduce them. Um, every so often, we get a glimpse uh, under the surface and find out how serious the problems are in particular places. For example, we know that VA hospitals have had very significant problems with failing to treat veterans and with mistreating uh, veterans. And sometimes we have um, states that perform what are called uh, uh, cardiac surgery report cards, where they evaluate the uh, rates of mortality and morbidity uh, in cardiac treatments. And it always turns out that 
places that people think are terrific wind up having high mortality and morbidity rates, while other places that don't have spectacular reputations turn out to do uh, remarkably well. So uh, we get glimpses, but nobody really knows how much malpractice there is. Other than that, we know there's a lot of it. This reminds me uh, a bit of uh, David Goldhill uh, in his book, Catastrophic Care. Uh, he details the story of his father. This is what sort of introduced him to uh, trying to understand the medical profession. Uh, and his father got an infection in a hospital, got sepsis, and died. And if you look at the rates of hospital-acquired infections, they're quite high. Uh, and to hear David Goldhill tell this story, in many cases, these can be entirely avoided at fairly low cost. So what changes the incentives here about, uh, you know, the doc what doctors face in terms of following specific protocols to do a better job or, or you know, a muted incentive perhaps to, to do the right thing? Well, the incentives in the healthcare system do not reward providers for treating patients well. They actually punish providers for doing that. Um, ideally, from a provider's perspective, you want to have your waiting room full of patients who need treatments. Uh, but if you cure everything that ails them, they won't need to come back. And so you'll have uh, an empty waiting room instead of a full one. Uh, it actually turns out that uh, hospitals and physicians make more money when patients are harmed than when they emerge from treatments well. Uh, because when patients like David Goldhill's father uh, uh, sustain post-surgical infections or other complications, uh, providers can charge for addressing those complications. And it turns out that addressing complications is a very significant source of profits for hospitals and doctors. So the incentives are exactly the opposite of what they should be. And when the incentives are wrong, uh, it's unreasonable to think that good results are going to follow. Uh, in the case of uh, David Goldhill's dad, uh, he suffered an infection that probably could have been prevented at very little cost. Uh, the research on these uh, infections, hospital-acquired infections, has shown that through simple procedures like wearing uh, masks and uh, draping the body in protective equipment and really a few simple things, that the rate of infection can be reduced to uh, an extremely low level. Many hospitals have uh, reduced it to zero in experimental context. So um, it's not expensive, but if you don't reward people for doing it, it doesn't get done. Why do patients find themselves in a situation when they have been a victim of medical malpractice, either through negligence or malice or um, just a mistake? Why do they so rarely find satisfaction in the courts? There are a lot of different reasons. One is patients often don't know that they've been injured as a result of malpractice. Um, patients think well of their physicians and tend to trust them and often 
the physicians don't tell the patients that they've been injured as a result of negligence. Uh, patients also know that there was something wrong with them before they went in to be treated. And when you're in poor health to begin with, it's natural to think that you may not return to good health afterwards. In other words, patients can't tell the difference between natural outcomes and outcomes that are unfavorable because of malpractice. So one reason is simply that a lot of people lump it. They just don't recognize that they've been injured as a result of negligence. Um, another reason is that access to lawyers is very constrained. These cases are very expensive to prepare for trial. Uh, consequently, lawyers only take cases that are very good and that have significant damages. If really, if there's any likely weakness in a plaintiff's case at all, a medical malpractice lawyer either will not take it or will drop it after uh, accepting it when the weakness is revealed. Um, so it's very hard to get past the initial hurdle of even having a claim and finding somebody who's going to help you litigate on the claim. And then once you get into the tort system, you discover that the system is slow and cumbersome and expensive and very stingy. Uh, it's, it's, not, it's not a place to go uh, if you're looking for a quick uh, buck because it's going to be a long time before you get paid anything. And when you do recover, it's not going to be nearly as much as you think it should be. Charlie Silver is co-author of the new Cato book, Medical Malpractice Litigation, How It Works, Why Tort Reform Hasn't Helped. With over 7 million copies in print, the Cato Institute's Pocket Constitution, containing both the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States, is one of the most popular editions available of our nation's founding documents. It has been held up by senators at press conferences and by representatives during floor debate, found in federal judicial chambers across the country, and appeared at conferences on constitutionalism across the globe. Buy yours today at Cato.org. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.